Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansbury, and today we're wrapping up our election slash explaining your ballot series by diving a little deeper into those state propositions. But first, as always, a brief refresher. (laughs) So about two weeks ago, we published an episode on Travis County Props A and B, which are both bond elections. And bonds are basically loans taken out by the government to fund large projects. And they're paid back by all of us (laughs) through a property tax increase. If passed, Prop A will fund about $233 million in transportation projects, while Prop B will fund about $276 million in parks projects. And only residents of Travis County get to vote on those Travis County Props A and B. Props 1 through 14, on the other hand, are statewide propositions, which means that all registered voters in the state of Texas will get to vote on them. And they're also not bonds. Props 1 through 14 are proposed amendments to the state constitution, and they cover a wide array of topics, from property taxes to broadband internet access. And they've all already been passed by the Texas legislature. But in order for them to actually go into effect and become true amendments to our state constitution, they have to be approved by voters. So last week, we published an episode all about Prop 14, which would establish a $1 billion fund to buy up new parkland in the state. And today, we're going to run through more of those state propositions. First up, we're going to talk about Prop 4, which is a big tax cut item on your ballot this year. If passed, it will do several things, but two of the biggest components, and the ones that are most relevant for the average person, uh, include increasing the homestead exemption from $40,000 to $100,000, and allocating about $7 billion to something called compression, which essentially means that the state is paying school districts to lower their tax rates. And in the end, the same amount of money goes to the schools, but a greater share is being paid by the state via sales tax revenue. And estimates of the savings this will produce for the average homeowner vary slightly, but most estimates suggest that the average Texas homeowner could see a $1,200 to $1,300 reduction in their annual property tax bill. So it's a pretty sizable savings. But how will this work exactly? And what does Prop 4 mean for renters or the future of public education? To tell us all about it, Let's listen in on an interview I recorded with State Representative Vicki Goodwin. She represents parts of the Austin area and the Texas House, and is a Democrat. Okay, I am here with State Representative Vicki Goodwin. We're talking about the election. Um, so just quickest like high level all of these propositions that are on the ballot the statewide ones props one through 14 um they originated in the texas legislature right can you talk a little bit about how all of these just got on the ballot in the first place yeah absolutely in texas we don't have a voter referendum where individual voters can put forth a petition and and have something 
voted on by the state. So all of the ballot initiatives are from the legislature and they have a higher vote requirement. So we have to have two thirds of the House, two thirds of the Senate vote in favor of the bill in order for it to become a proposition on our constitutional amendment ballot. Right. And then, you know, we do have a large number of these and um, I'm sure it's a question you've been asked to, like, why do we have so many of these on our ballot? Some of them seem like really big proposals that I can maybe understand voters asking for, but some of them seem less important or <laughs> less uh, big for important to the whole state. And so why do we have to go through this process here in Texas? So, you know, some of it is just up to the individual legislator, the House member or the senator deciding that it would be easier to get a bill passed and not vetoed by the governor if it is Mm -hmm. something that the voters get to decide. So, in other words, if there's some question about would voters in the state want this or not, well, let's put it up for them to decide. And so that might be the reasoning behind some others like the El Paso uh, proposition that we're voting on this time, there actually was a prior amendment to the constitution that allowed other cities to have bond elections for park and recreation. So this time around, we're just adding El Paso to that list of other cities that already have that ability. Right. My understanding is Texas's constitution is rather old and long. And so at this point, sometimes things just need to Uh, It might surprise people what things are in the Constitution or are not that we then have to amend, like the exactly thing. Yeah, I think we have over 700 amendments to our Constitution, and it's a little bit unwieldy, but that's just the way it is. (laughs) Okay, so I want to talk about um, one of the bigger uh, propositions on the ballot this year, which is Prop 4, which is the property tax Mm -hmm. um, legislation. And I know it has a whole bit whole bunch of different components in it. Mm -hmm. And the biggest ones, my understanding, are the homestead exemption. So that's raising the homestead exemption from 40,000 to 100,000. And then Mm -hmm. some level of uh, what they call compression. Um, Can you explain what those two things are? Yeah. So the, the first question a lot of people have, is this going to affect how much money our schools get? And it does not it just shifts who pays for it. So we're saying we've got $12 billion that we are going to take from the state coffers and pay to our school districts, which means that property taxpayers get that $12 billion in relief. So that's what the two components do. Raising the homestead exemption from 40 to 100,000 means that on the first $100,000 of value in your home, you don't pay taxes. And then the second part is the tax compression, which really just means lowering the tax rate. And so this will benefit home homeowners, um, but unfortunately it doesn't help renters in, unless a landlord passes any savings along to a renter, which, um, you know, it's not incredibly likely to happen. Right. My understanding is, that I guess, well, homestead exemption can only be um, applied if you actually own the home and live in it, right? So that one, like there's no chance of that impacting renters, but the compression um, would impact all properties. So potentially a landlord could decide once they get this property tax relief to lower um, their, you know, what they charge their renters. But that, I guess, probably depends a lot on the market if you're living in a place where uh, rents are competitive. I I guess that's kind of the argument, right? Yeah, well, in the the fourth component of it is um, something that we're going to try. It's a pilot program for three years. 
on could be properties that landlords own and rent out. So it could potentially help in that situation, but it's not mm, as focused as I would like to see it be. So basically, if you own a property that's $5 million or less in value, you will get a 20% cap on your assessment value, which will help over time. Okay. But you feel like that still doesn't give like a super strong help to renters yet? No. So I have a proposal for next session that would say if a landlord uh, commits to providing fair market rent or below and doesn't raise rent more than 5% year over year, then they could get an assessment cap. So basically mm-hmm. saying you have to do something in return for this uh, this reduction in your property taxes. Okay. So that's really the the heart of the concern here is this feeling like we're kind of leaving it up to landowners or landlords to be like, we'll just lower uh, rates for for folks, which like they may or may not do. Correct. Yeah. Right. I think we should have, you know, something that says that they will do that in return. Right. Okay. And then, you know, the main thing that I'm confused about by this um, is the longevity of it. So I know that um, it's a pretty, for a homeowner, it is a pretty significant tax cut. You know, I've seen numbers like $1,200, $1,300, like that's a, that's a lot of money. Um, but what happens if in four years the legislature doesn't have all that? Because this year, a lot I know a lot of that money is coming from a really historic budget surplus. What if we don't have a surplus in, in four or five years? Then what? Well, there's a few different components to the surplus, one of which is the main way that the state gets our revenue is through sales taxes. And with inflation, items cost more. And so then we collect more sales tax. So I do think that part of our increase in what we collected in revenue will continue going forward. Another big piece of it is what we get from oil and gas extraction. And so that has been more volatile over the years. And then, of course, we got a lot of dollars from COVID relief. And so not all of it will be ongoing. And so there is that concern. There is a concern that the legislature has tended to have very tight purse strings and we have not always funded our schools the way that we ought to. And so, yes, I I share the concern what will happen in future years. But I do think um, part of the surplus that we see now will continue. And that was State Representative Vicki Goodwin. Now, when I asked Representative Goodwin if she personally plans on voting for Prop 4, she said she voted against it because she feels like it's not the best bill. She said she supports raising the homestead exemption, but that, quote, reducing the school property tax without having a different revenue source is a concern, end quote. But opinions on Prop 4 have been mixed. The Austin Chronicle has come out against it, largely because it excludes renters and doesn't actually, quote, address the dire state of school funding in any meaningful way, end quote. In other words, it doesn't actually add money to our school districts. The Austin American Statesman, on the other hand, has endorsed Prop 4 and is supporting it, but acknowledged some of these concerns, writing, quote, Who doesn't welcome a break on their skyrocketing tax bills, especially when Texas property taxes are among the highest in the country? But while we endorse relief for Texans, who have been taking it on the chin with soaring school taxes for too long, we also note that this is merely a temporary bandage on a school finance system in Texas that is broken and ill-suited for the state's size and needs. End quote. 
And when the bill that eventually became Prop 4 was first passed, Texas House Speaker Dade Phelan, a Republican, said in a press release, quote, As the saying goes, everything is bigger in Texas. And now that includes property tax relief. At the start of the session, state leaders set out to pass legislation that would provide relief in a way that property owners would actually see and feel. This $18 billion package, the largest in the country, will do just that. End quote. And so that's Prop 4. Now, next up, we're going to dive a little deeper into Prop 6. Here's what it will say on your ballot. Quote, The constitutional amendment creating the Texas Water Fund to assist in financing water projects in the state. End quote. Now, to tell us more about what exactly that means, let's listen in on an interview I recorded a few weeks ago with Jennifer Walker, director of the Texas Coast and Water Program at the National Wildlife Federation. And the National Wildlife Federation does a lot of work on Texas water policies, but they don't make official recommendations um, or endorsements when it comes to elections. Okay, anyway, let's give that interview a listen. Okay, I'm here with Jennifer and we're talking about Proposition 6, right? (laughs) It's hard to keep them all track. Proposition six and water today. So let's just start highest level. Uh, if passed, what would proposition six do? So if voters pass proposition six, it would enable significant new investments for the state's water infrastructure. Um, the funds could be used to support water loss mitigation, water conservation, aquifer storage and recovery, and other strategies that will build a more resilient water supply for Texas, uh, which is really important as we have are experiencing um, weather variations due to climate change, population growth, aging water systems. Just we have a lot coming out of our water systems right now. Um, the the uh, money allocated through the Texas Water Fund, which would be created by Prop 6, could be used to invest in water supplies Um invest in our existing water infrastructure, invested in technical assistance for water utilities that need help figuring out what they need to do in order to have resilient water systems. And also education, um, uh, part of it is earmarked for um, a water education campaign across the state. And we, we really need to increase our water literacy and our knowledge of our water resources and what role we each individually and collectively have to play in in the longevity and the resiliency of our water supply. Okay. And and my understanding is it's it's a billion dollars. It's a billion dollars, yes. And where's that money coming from? It's not like a new tax on all of us as taxpayers, right? This is like money the legislature has or has collected. Is this part of that surplus we've been hearing so much about in the news? Or it's it's not a new tax, right? No, it's part of, it's, you know, all the, all the information on it, it was, it was allocated, you know, the legislature, we had a $33 billion surplus this past session. And and there was a lot of different needs identified um, and a lot of, you know, discussion about how that would be, you know, would it be for state parks? Would it be for property tax relief? Would it be for schools? I mean, we have so many needs in Texas. Um 
And, and part of the conversation was water and water supply and water infrastructure and how much was needed there. Um, there were different numbers going around 5 billion, 3 billion. So 1 billion was the number that came. And my understanding is that, that, that is coming out of, of the surplus the you know, the surplus that our state had the really, really big surplus that, that we had this past, this past, um, session. Right. So this is money. It's, basically already been collected from us as taxpayers. And and um, when we talk about the need here in Texas for water supply, I mean, I think like on some level, we all know this, right? Like, we, many cities across the state, you know, Austin is still in drought conditions. It's like all we hear about, we look at our reservoirs like, like Travis and they're so low and it seems like it's only going to get worse. But I know that you all and the organizations you're affiliated with have done some research and looked into this. Like, can can you talk more about like what challenge are we really facing here in Texas? Can we quantify that a bit more or qualify it? Well, um, there's lots of different pieces and parts of our water infrastructure and water supply systems that we can look at. Um, it, National Wildlife Federation, um, with our partners at the Living Waters Project spent like a year researching water loss in Texas. Um, and this really is looking at water that we're losing through leaking infrastructure within our cities. So a city, say city A, is withdrawing water from either your surface water storage or reservoir or lake or groundwater, you know, pumping it to their water treatment plant, treating that water to drinking water standards, then putting it into the pipes or infrastructure within our communities and, and pumping it out to each end user, to your house, to my house, to businesses, et cetera. And what we found based on data that these utilities report to the state on an annual basis, what we found is that, that Texas communities are losing. Um, and for the data we looked at for 2020 was about 572,000 acre feet per year statewide across the state. And so that's a weird number and acre feet's a weird measurement, but it's equal to the annual water use of the cities of Austin, Fort Worth, El Paso, Laredo, and Lubbock combined. That was in 2020, based on 2020 data, um, that was how much water was lost in one year through in one year infrastructure. And that um, another another unit of measurement that we use is gallons gallons lost per service connection per day. So that is that equates to about fifty gallons per service connection per day being lost um, as waters push through our distribution systems. Now, and what's a service connection? A service connection is your house, my house. Wow. So house. each of us, so like the water coming to my house every day, 51 gallons is being lost on average. On average. Yes. Right. And, you know, so it, it varies wildly across the state. These are, these are um, numbers for the whole state. Some regions have more, some have less, some cities have more and less. Some cities are investing a lot of money in addressing water loss. So I don't want to like blanketly right. say like, you know, <laughs> doing a terrible job because they're not. But what we are saying, is this is an area we need to invest in. Hmm. This is water we already have. Um, we are losing it through leaking infrastructure, um, infrastructure that we rarely see unless, you know, there's a leak and water flying out um, and a geyser in the street or trickling. Um, this 
this infrastructure is expensive to fix, but water, we can no longer really afford to lose so much water. Um, we need to look at the hierarchy of what are we going to spend our money resources on to get water resources. And we really need to lean in to making sure that we're not losing water that could reach its intended destination, that we are being as um, efficient as possible with the way that we each use water in our homes and our businesses, and that we are looking at new water supplies that make sense for the times that we're in, for the water supplies we have, and for the climate that we're in. Um, so, so we really, we did research looking at water loss and, you know, I don't know if it was luck or planning, probably a little bit of both, but it really was a big part of the discussion and, and our research and, and, um, you know, came at a really good time. It came in an advance of session. It was a big part of the conversation. And we didn't just say, we're losing tons of water, fix it. We also proposed solutions. We showed how it was cost effective to invest in this. Um, we, we, our practice is to identify problems, but also to propose solutions. Um, so, so that's, you know, I'm happy to see that water loss mitigation, which is what we call like the practice of, you know, fixing our infrastructure in order to um, reduce water loss, that water loss mitigation is a strategy that if Prop 6 passes um, the the legislation um, around this directs some of those funds to go towards these types of programs. Gotcha. And And what does that look like? How do we actually fix some of this water loss? So there's a lot of different ways and each community is really different. And that's the thing about um, providing water um, in each community. Um, your, your water supply is unique. Um, your water delivery systems, how old the systems are, how new they are, what kind of geography and topography they're going with. They're un buried underground. Has there been a drought? Have pipes cracked and moved? Um but there, there's several types of interventions that folks can do. There's a lot of um, really neat um, tools that people use to detect leaks. So having like a, a, a consistent from year to year program to detect and fix leaks and respond to them, um, to map out your system and know where your older pipes are and where the more leak prone areas are, um, to have you know, if, if you're a larger utility that is able to, to have, have staff that, that has like a response time for leaks and, and a reporting system, because a water utility can't be everywhere in a community, but, but the citizens are like, you know, an easy way to report leaks where they get followed up on. Um, and also in communities that have, um, automatic metering systems, you know, water meters, um, either at people's homes or the bigger water meters that measure water that have that report back, you know, more than like monthly, um, you can monitor them through through that. There's there's a lot of different techniques so um, that that communities can use. Right, I know that here in Austin we're getting smart meters now. It's already saved me once before. Like, let me know that a hose outside was running because it burst uh -huh. open. Um, which we didn't have before, you know, a year ago, I didn't have that offered to me. Yeah. Who hasn't forgotten about their hose when they're watering their trees or running the spring? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I look forward to getting my, um, my meter at my house when, when my time comes. Yeah. So, okay. So this fund, uh, so prop six, you know, 
a billion dollars. My understanding is like 75% of it goes into one bucket, which is like educational campaigns, this water loss and infrastructure issues. Um, and it would be dispersed by the Texas Water Development Board, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. And can you just tell me real quick, what is the Texas Water Development Board? So the Texas Water Development Board is a state agency. They're not regulatory in nature like some of our other agencies, but the Texas Water Development Board, um, their main, they, they uh, collect and disseminate water-related data. For example, the water loss report that, we, that I talked about, um, all the utilities in Texas have to turn in data on their water loss, water conservation, water use, the water... Texas Water Development Board collects that, um, and that's the data that we used. Um, They also um, run and administer a regional flood planning and regional water planning um, processes, which are very important. Our state flood plan and our state water plan, water supply plan comes from the Water Development Board. Um, They do lots of research about um, surface water and coastal areas. It's It's a small but but I'd say mighty agency that does a lot of stuff. Um, we we frequently engage with them on different on different things. Um, but they also one of the big things that they do is they administer all these financial programs. They administer state revolving funds, and and they have a the the SWIFT fund, the State Water Implementation Fund of Texas. They will administer this billion dollars if it gets if the voters approve Prop Six. Um, so they they do a lot, but it's all focused on water um, and and a lot of it on on water supply, flooding, and research. And right. Data. And so I've seen that SWIFT funding come up before. Um, how is that different than this um, like new billion dollars, or is it just adding more money into that fund? Yeah. So these funds from from Prop Six. Um, will sit, my understanding is that they're going to sit in an account, the, the, um, the Texas water fund. And, and then they can, it can be, these funds can be expended through existing programs and not all the existing programs at the board, but, but through the state revolving fund, through um, SWIFT, the state water implementation fund of Texas And SWIFT is a program that was created, I want to say it was in the 2013 legislative session. I might not be exactly right about that, but it was after our last really bad drought, Hmm. which is when these big water legislation things tend to happen. And what it did was, and I can't remember the amount of seed money they put in it, but it really created this like revolving loan fund that has subsidized interest rates. Um, And so an entity, say Austin, can go and apply for loans. And I think actually for the automatic meter systems that they used a SWIFT loan for part of it. Um, So Austin, for example, could go and apply for a SWIFT loan at a reduced interest rate from the Water Development Board. And um, there's a couple requirements on it. Um, There's a, a yearly application window. It has to be a strategy that is included in the regional and state water plan. So it has to be a named water water management strategy, water supply strategy, and that it has to meet a lot of other requirements. But it really is, um, it was a way when they created the SWIFT fund, it was the water, the legislature looking at our state water plan 
um, and saying, we need to start funding some of these strategies. We just went through a really bad drought. Um, we're going to create a fund to do that. Um, and this is what that fund is. So anything that gets funded through SWIFT has to be in the state water plan. Gotcha. And so this new fund, at least I know the majority of the funding for it can will go to the Texas Water Development Board and they could put it into SWIFT. They could put it into what any other programs they want. Well, not you know? any program. So it can go into SWIFT. It can go into the Clean Water or Drinking Water State Revolving Funds, which is a really big fund. That's where federal money comes into the state as well and is put in through there. Um, the the IIJA money, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act money, which is a big amount of money coming to Texas, um, is a lot of it's going through the SRF funds. Um, the Rural Water Assistance Fund um, is another place. There's the Statewide Water Public Awareness Account, which is a new fund. Um, but some of the fund, some of the money can go into that to to fund a statewide public awareness program. Um, and I think the water development board is still figuring out how that's going to work. Um, there's still going to be rulemaking around this if it passes. So a lot of these details will be figured out, um, later. Um, but we could see it as a cash infusion, really. This is like helping to bolster up these programs, make them stronger, probably allow, yep. I'll obviously allow more money to be spent, more of these programs to be funded more or no more municipalities to get. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So say for example, the SWIFT fund has a certain amount of dollars in it every year and there's applications come in and the water development board is like, well, we'll take, you know, four out of 10 of these applications and fund them because that's all the money we have this year. Um, There may be a capacity to take on more. Um, You know, we don't know exact, I don't know exactly how it's going to work. I'm not designing how, how this program will the fine print of how it will be administered. But honestly, we're all going to have a say in that um, when the board, when the water development board does rulemaking um, post-election um, it's not all decided. Then there's a rulemaking that happens around the implementation of all kinds of legislation. And there's an opportunity for people to get involved in the public comment periods and, and um, you know, telling our state agencies and providing opinions on how, we see the best way to design these programs. Yeah. So like I said, my reading of it is then about 70% of 75% of the funding goes through this Texas water development board. And then 25% is set aside for like new water sources. Is that right? Can you talk about what that means? What are these like new water sources? Yeah. So the new water supply for Texas fund is what it's called. And 25%, um, is set aside for that. And, and according to, um, to the bill SB 28 and to the information on the water development board website, um, they are directed to ensure that a portion of that money is used for the following projects. So there's a list of projects and it's a portion of it, but, but I think it's really permissive on what it could be, but it's supposed to be new water supply um, so, so it's, I think it's, it's designated as, um, some of the things that they want a portion of that new water supply fund for Texas to go to are, um, brackish or marine desalination projects, uh, beneficial use of produced water, aquifer storage and recovery projects, and, um, not remembering 
Can you yeah. can you explain real briefly what aquifer aquifer storage and recovery is? I know that's something that our listeners yeah. might be vaguely familiar with. The city of Austin is starting to do some research on this and experimentation. Can you just explain what that is? Absolutely. Yeah. So aquifer storage and recovery, there's several communities in Texas that already have operational aqua ASR is what we call it, aquifer storage and recovery projects. And so what ASR is in a nutshell is you take whatever water supply you have access to. Um, for Austin, it would be water from the Colorado River, from the Highland Lakes, um, water that we already have access to um, in Austin. You'd clean it to drinking water standards and then you you would pump it underground into an aquifer to store it until we need it. And the idea is that you don't lose that water. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't evaporate. And, and that water is stored to be used when we need it, when our surface water supplies are very low. Like now, for example, although I don't think it would even really be used now, it would be until you would wait until you get into kind of like an emergency situation. It's the way that Austin's ASR is going to be designed, I believe, from what I know about it. Um, so that's a very simplified version of it. You have to have an appropriate aquifer that has appropriate geology where the water won't move and travel through the strata. Um, the idea is, is that the water that you inject underground will form kind of a bubble and stay in fairly in place. And there's ways to monitor it through monitoring wells and and the, the water will have you know, different chemical makeup than the, than the water that is the native water that's already in the aquifer. Um, SAW's San Antonio Water System has a fairly large ASR project that they use. I believe it has 60,000 acre feet in it. Um, so, you know, Austin's looking into that, but it, I think it's a way, um, and I, I know of a lot of communities that are looking into it. There's been a lot of talk about it. It's, it's a way to, to store water um, without losing it. Um, for example, the Highland Lakes, Austin's water supply evaporate each year um, an amount equal to or greater than what the city of Austin uses in a year. Wow. So evaporation is a big problem. Um, and then also rain is more sporadic. We don't know when and how much is coming lately. You know, the past is no longer really a good predictor of the future. <laughs> and um it it uh i think surface water reservoirs and storage are just not really the best way for us to invest our our funds to get water resources also they are can be very environmentally destructive um really disrupt um our natural systems and we want to stay away from that as much as we possibly can mhm and then just before we close, you know, obviously we're talking about about water here and and a investment, you know, billion dollar investment. I am sure that in Texas we need like so much <laughs> gazillions of dollars of investment in water or across the country we do. Um, you know, if you're just someone that cares about water and you're concerned about the future of Austin's water, like what are some I don't know, recommendations you might have for ways people can get involved or learn more. Um, because, you know, every summer, me, like many others, I'm sure, you know, you're like looking at those alerts from the city, like, oh, and the water supply just always seems so, so low. Yeah. Well, um, good question. I will say, um, and, and my, uh, 
my free time when I'm not director of of the Texas Policy Program at National Wildlife Federation. I actually serve as the chair of the Waterford Task Force for the city of Austin. Ah. Um, working to with with Austin Water and and other city departments to develop Austin's water supply plan. Um, we developed and approved a plan uh, that was a plan was finalized and approved by city council in December, 2018. It's called the water forward plan. And, and it really is trying to build up a really integrated resilient water supply for the city. Um, I think Austin has really done a great job in trying to think outside of the traditional water supply box and, and be create an adaptive and resilient water supply um, and really looking at the impacts of climate change too. We have a ways to go and there's some improvements to be done. I think Austin really is kind of at the tip of the spear for Texas as far as that type of planning. Um, but there we are working on, and I say we through the task force and with Austin Water developing um, an update to that plan. And there's going to be opportunities for public input. I think they even have a Speak Up Austin page um, about that to learn more about it. So I would just say like for me, um, you know, I care about water clearly and I care about our community. And that's one of the ways that I have gotten involved is in serving on this task force. Um, you know, it's one of the boards and commissions for the city where people can put their hands up and get appointed to, to help. But there's lots of input um, opportunities as well. And Austin is actively developing its new water supply plan. And that was Jennifer Walker with the National Wildlife Federation. And a bit more context for Prop 6. As Jennifer laid out, the need for water conservation projects is fairly obvious in Texas. So Prop 6 has received a good amount of bipartisan support. But the Sierra Club, which does a lot of environmental policy and advocacy work across the state, including on water issues, has decided to neither support nor oppose the proposition. The reasons why get a bit into the weeds, but in essence, they raise concerns that economically distressed areas will not be initially prioritized to receive funds. And they also raise concerns that the projects that will receive funding from that $250 million new water supply for Texas fund chunk um, will be regulated by state agencies that may not have high enough environmental standards, especially for projects like marine desalination. Despite this, both the Austin American Statesman and the Austin Chronicle have endorsed Prop 6. In their statement of support for Prop 6, the Austin Chronicle acknowledged the Sierra Club's concerns, but wrote that, quote, the Chronicle feels an urgent investment in water is necessary, end quote. Anyway, so that's Prop 6. (laughs) Another one of these infrastructure-related propositions is Prop 8, which is all about increasing high-speed internet access in the state. Here's how it will appear on your ballot. Quote, the constitutional amendment creating the Broadband Infrastructure Fund to expand high-speed broadband access and assist in the financing of connectivity projects. End quote. And what exactly does that mean? To tell us all about it, let's listen in on an interview I recorded with Kelty Garby, Executive Director of Texas Rural Funders, an organization in support of Prop 8. Okay, I am here with Kelty, and we are talking about Proposition 8. Um, let's start just at the simplest level. 
what does Proposition 8 seek to do? What would happen if it passed? The legislature set aside one and a half billion dollars in state funding that would be administered by the Texas Comptroller. Um, So if Prop 8 passes, it would create a broadband infrastructure fund that expands and supports broadband and telecommunications infrastructure and services. Um, That includes 911, um, but there will also be some flexibility for the Comptroller's Office where the State Broadband Development Office is located um, to figure out the best uses of those state dollars. Okay. And so why is something like this needed in Texas? Why do we, why do you all feel like we need a a broadband infrastructure fund? Um, So it's useful to know that nationally, there's a lot of work and a lot of funding related to broadband that's been released. Um, The NTIA, which stands for National Telecommunications and Information Administration, Um, allocated about $42 billion across all 50 states and the territories. Texas actually got $3.3 billion, which is more than any other state for broadband. Um, I know that sounds like a lot of money, but you realize that that speaks to the magnitude of need that we actually have in Texas. Um, So there are models that show that Texas needs billions more Um, So the federal NTIA has allocated $3.3 billion. This $1.5 billion would supplement it um, and give us just over $5 billion at the state level to reach unserved and underserved areas. Um, And those are actually areas that have um, definitions that have been created by the NTIA and our state broadband office. Okay, so this money that um, our state would be putting up if this passes is kind of helping to supplement or to match in some way federal funding that's already coming in uh, for this project, but to kind of beef it up. Is that accurate? It would it would match, but it would also support things like Next Generation 911. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the future, 911 will be all based on broadband um, and in particular, rural areas have to spend a lot of money to support their 911 services, but there are uses like that that are a bit more flexible than the federal dollars. So it can definitely be used for required matches, but it gives the state some flexibility too. Okay. Would we not get that federal money if we didn't put up any of our own, or is this just kind of in addition to? Do you know? We'll still get the federal dollars, um, but there is also a 25% required match, and it may um, end up that the broadband providers or communities that are receiving the broadband fill that match, but it does give the state broadband office the option to consider using state funds for the match. Yeah. So you're from Texas Rural Funders. Um well, why don't you briefly describe that organi- what that organization does, and then maybe we can talk some about the need for broadband in rural communities. Texas, you know, is a huge state. Uh, so for real quick, what, what does Texas Rural Funders do? Um, Texas Rural Funders is a 44-member and growing philanthropy-serving organization. Um, that means that we have 44 member foundations Um, interested in bringing attention and resources to rural Texas. And so it's a mix of 
large national and state funders and then very small funders um, located in rural areas. Um, we actually started in 2017 as a funder collaborative um, <clears throat> with the goal of working on issues that couldn't be addressed by one funder alone. And broadband um, was one of the main issues that we first started working on. We actually do other work, but many people know us for the broadband work. Um, and I, I like to say that we were working on broadband before broadband was cool um, mm -hmm. because when COVID hit, everybody started to understand just how important broadband is for everything from um, being online for Zoom, for work, education, healthcare, um, many small businesses, rural and urban, use broadband just to power their business. Um, and then there are things that we don't think about as much, particularly in rural areas, when you consider that um, our water, our food, um, the wood that we use to build our houses, all of those industries, many factories, farms, um, wind farms, all of those things tend to exist in rural parts of the state and they need to be connected. Um, also, when you look at different rural parts of the state and realize um, it can be a life or death concern um, about whether your hospital, fire, and ambulances can stay connected. Um, I don't know about you, but I want those to be those services to be connected um, when I'm in need of them. Um, and so we don't view it as a competition between urban and rural. We think that for a healthy Texas, urban and rural um, are need to be connected and they are connected. Um, and so we need rural communities to be as strong as urban communities because they're linked. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about broadband, this might be kind of a stupid question, but like we're talking about the internet, right? And so, but what does it mean? Like what is broadband infrastructure? Like what needs to be what does that look like? What needs to be built in order to make sure uh, folks in rural communities have access to the internet? And like, I presume high-speed internet. Yes, um, great question. Um, the gold standard in broadband is fiber. You want fiber to be laid in as many places as you possibly can, but Texas is a really big state and some parts of our state have rocky soil. Some parts of our state have very many trees. Some parts of our state have large mountains and the different geographic features across the state may limit your ability to lay fiber. So in some places, um, satellite is what people are using, um, but fiber has the ability to continue to expand to meet the demand. Um, but you also have to do a cost benefit analysis in terms of how much it costs to lay the fiber, um, or if you need to put it on poles in different parts of the state. Um, there's a group of rural broadband operators that we have worked closely with who are actually located in different parts of the state. Um, and one of the questions that people often ask is why is it so expensive to take broadband to rural areas? And one, it's just lower density. There aren't as many people per square mile. Um, but also you have to dig or drill 
or if you don't have poles, put up poles to hang um, the infrastructure on. So um, that's all I'll say about Yeah, that. it's like physical manual like work. Things need to be literally built yes. in order to, I guess, deliver the broadband out. And is this kind of why you see a need for the government to step in here and provide some of this funding? I presume is the private market not necessarily willing to lay down that that infrastructure for like one house at the end of a long street or whatever? Or, you know, is it is it not as cost effective for these companies to come in and just bring because like in Austin, you know, like I live in, you know, the central core of the city, my broadband comes in, you know, people are knocking at my door all the time. Do I want to connect to the new fiber service that's been built in my neighborhood? You know, I presume they're not doing that in all parts of the state. That's right. Um, in a lot of cities, you have three to five options. There are rural areas of the state that don't currently have the infrastructure built, or if they have broadband, they have one provider, which means they don't have a choice. Um, and so if that provider increases the cost um, or isn't maintaining their network quite the way they should be, and it gets slower, um, that you just don't have as good of options in some rural parts of the state. And so what you do want is to have more than one option. You want the competition to exist. Um, and there are, are rural communities, again, depending on the geographic features, the number of providers, the number of people or businesses. So the locations um, that exist where you could take broadband to, um, the providers look at all of the different factors and figure out what the return on investment is and how long it will take to get a return on investment. And so um, in there are some parts of the state where um, probably small providers and co-ops are the main and best option. Um, it's why we have electricity across all of Texas is the rural electrification work that happened. And so Similarly, with broadband, um, there is a market failure in that there are some parts of the state that just don't have broadband. And so the the dollars, particularly from the federal government, but hopefully also from the state government, um, are designed to help reach the, the unserved and underserved areas of the state that have no broadband or very limited choices. Gotcha. And do we have any numbers? Um, I'm not sure if you know off the top of your head, but um, about the broadband need in Texas, you know, like how many Texans are without good access or percentages or anything like that? There are 3 million households unserved, um, which translates into about 7 million people. Um, I think the other thing that's useful to know when you talk about broadband needs, we think of it as a three-legged stool that includes access, adoption, and use. Mm -hmm. So the first leg of the stool is access to physical infrastructure, and that's what the funding will help create. Um, we often think about whether people have broadband available at their homes, and sometimes it seems like they have it, but it's because they're using their cell phones. And that's not the same thing as having wired broadband available to your house or your business. The second part of that is adoption. Um, so as an example, in Deep East Texas, they researched and found out that 
People in deep East Texas were paying twice as much as their urban counterparts for half the speed. Mm. And so the adoption piece is if you do have broadband available, can you afford it? Um, There may be only one provider um, who gives slow and expensive service. And so somebody's going to ask themselves, is it really worth it? So they might have the physical infrastructure, but not choose to adopt it. And then the third piece is use. And that means having devices and knowing how to use them. And so right now there are rural Texans that have no stool or they have a stool that doesn't have all three legs. And that was Kelty Garby with Texas Rural Funders talking about Prop 8. Now for a bit of context here, Prop 8 has not generated a ton of controversy. It has received support from both Republicans and Democrats and was endorsed by the Austin Chronicle and the Austin American Statesman. As the League of Women Voters lists in their nonpartisan guide, the main argument against it is, quote, funding high-speed internet expansion is not the responsibility of the government. Private companies have already provided most Texans with access to high-speed internet, end quote. Anyway, so that's Prop 8. Another proposition on the ballot this year is Prop 7, and it's probably one of the most controversial items. Here's how it will look on your ballot. Quote, The constitutional amendment providing for the creation of the Texas Energy Fund to support the construction, maintenance, modernization, and operation of electric generating facilities. End quote. If passed, Prop 7 will provide low-interest loans and grants to companies to build or upgrade natural gas power plants. Supporters say Prop 7 was put on the ballot to increase the reliability of our electric grid, especially in the wake of Winter Storm Uri. But solar, wind, and battery projects were all excluded from receiving money from this fund. And that's why major environmental groups, like the Sierra Club, are campaigning against it, pointing out that more than 50% of the state's natural gas supply shut down during Winter Storm Uri, and calling Prop 7... Um, a subsidy for, quote, wealthy companies building polluting gas plants, end quote. Now, if you want to learn more about Prop 7 and all the rest of the state propositions on your ballot that we haven't been able to cover in this episode, then be sure to check out our Instagram feed at the underscore Austin underscore common or our website, theaustincommon.com. And remember, early voting lasts through November 3rd and election day is November 7th. And of course, you can find our other two election podcast episodes on Travis County Props A and B, as well as State Prop 14 in our podcast feed. The Austin Common Radio Hour is brought to you in partnership by the Austin Common and Co-op Radio. The Austin Common is a local news source that helps Austinites be informed and make a difference in their community. You can learn more about the Austin Common by visiting theaustincommon.com or following us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. Co-op is a cooperatively run community radio station based right here in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of Co-op's amazing lineup of shows, visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM. This show is hosted by me, Amy Stansbury, and produced by John Hoffner. You can find podcasts of the Austin Common Radio Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcast. And one quick friendly request on this, if you like our show and you find it useful, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. It really does help us to be seen and heard by more folks in Austin. So thank you in advance if you're able to do that for us. Thanks for listening.